Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to you about how much setting up a psychology practice costs. So we don't love talking about money, do we? We don't love talking about the fact that if you want to strike out on your own and do private practice, that means that there's going to have to be money flowing out from your personal account to start with in order to get that money flowing in. So this is already activating a ton of money mindset issues for me. I'm already finding it icky to even talk about it, but there's an awful lot of stuff which I really wish I'd known before I first set out in private practice. And so I am determined in service of that to share it with you, to share what I've learned over the past couple of years in private practice and a few things which I think if I'd known at the beginning, I would have done things really differently. So firstly, it's important to say that as psychologists, therapists or counsellors, we're really lucky in that it's possible for us to build what's known as a cockroach business. Basically, a cockroach business means that we don't often need much investment to start up as our skills are valuable in themselves. It also means that we're less likely to run into financial trouble um, or less likely than a business like a hair salon, for example, that requires loads of loans at the beginning to get up and running. But however frugal you are, there are still costs associated with running a business. And if you're not careful, those can creep up on you and lead to a disappointing end of month. So as I said, it feels pretty scary for me to write this, as I know that I don't always make perfect financial decisions. There really wasn't anything in training that prepared me for having to create uh, budgeting spreadsheets, financial forecasts, that kind of thing. I mean, we didn't cover it at all in my clinical psychology training. Um, I don't know whether other therapy trainings include it, but I'm, I think it's probably doubtful that they do. However, I've learned a lot the hard way over the past couple of years. So this is really me sharing with you um, three things which I wish I'd known more about, which is the setup costs of a private practice, the running costs of a private practice, and how important delegation is. Okay, so firstly, if we're going to talk about the money flowing out of a private practice, so things you need to spend money on, the place everyone's mind goes is tax, because that's the one that everyone knows about. So I'm not going to say loads about it, because if it's complicated for you, for whatever reason, you've really got to see an accountant for that advice. And I'm going to get one on this podcast, and I'm going to do a masterclass with one as well. Um, but for a lot of us, it actually really isn't complicated. So if you are doing any kind of private work at all, you need to register for self-assessment with HMRC. This is very easy on the direct.gov website. Now, if you're a sole trader, literally all you do is you tell HMRC that you are a sole trader and away you go. You've got to keep very good records of any money you spend and you've got to save every receipt. But that is incredibly easy. The other thing that I really recommend is getting some kind of software like Free Agent, which allows you to link your bank account, explain every transaction as you go and upload your receipts to it. There are lots out there, but Free Agent came free with my NatWest business banking and was really easy to use. So I know that that's quite a good one. Uh, I've also heard good things about Xero and QuickBooks. 
The advantage of those is that when it comes to submitting your tax return, you just do it with a click of a button. There's nothing more to it than that. Um, another way of doing that is you could just snap a photo of any receipt or screenshot email receipts and save them all into Google Drive. Then if you were audited, you can just produce them all that way. It's really not very stressful for a sole trader, so long as you keep good records of your transactions. The other thing I'd recommend as a sole trader is that you do generate invoices for all of the work that you do, even if you don't actually give those invoices to a client. So for example, I create an invoice every week for every client, even the ones that pay me in session uh, on their card. So people that pay me using my card reader, they get a receipt from my card reader company, which is iZettle, if you're interested. Um, so they don't need an invoice but I still create one in free agent so that I can reconcile it when that payment comes into my account. That way I've got a good record of who's paid me and when. Because if you do any kind of insurance work or you have clients that you bill monthly for whatever reason, you will find there are times when even the most surprising people do not pay you. And you'll find yourself, you get to the end of the month and you're £700 short and you've got no idea why. Now, if you've created an invoice for every single hour of work that you've done, it's really easy to go back and track who hasn't paid you. So I really recommend doing it that way. The other thing I need to say is that if you do become a limited company or a social enterprise, those are a completely different beast when it comes to accounts. There's stuff you need to do for companies' house and I'm mathematically challenged. And to be honest, it's all a little bit beyond me, not beyond everybody. And if you harbour a secret love of numbers, you might want to do it yourself. But for the majority of us, it's just beyond our expertise and it's worth getting an accountant. So another thing that I get asked about a lot when people find out that I've been in private practice for a while is what is a good rule of thumb for how much you should put aside for tax if you're a sole trader? As a guideline, most people seem to agree that setting aside about 25% of your earnings in a separate account, specifically for tax, is sensible. If you're anything like me, you'll have a lot of allowable expenses, which are expenses that you can offset against your tax. And that might mean that you don't need everything that you save for your tax bill. But to be honest, I wouldn't try and work it out. I'd just keep 25% back from the beginning and enjoy the bonus if you don't need it all. Now, obviously, you need to see a qualified accountant and get some special advice about your specific circumstances, especially if you do have other income, like from NHS work or any other kind of employment. And most accountants will do a one-off consultancy with you so that you can get that advice to get make sure that everything's set up the way it needs to be from the beginning. So I do recommend doing that. I've definitely had some friendly advice um, from accountants at the beginning just to check that that 25% was a reasonable figure for me. Uh, it seems to be for most people, but if you think there might be anything complicated about your circumstances, I really do recommend don't let the anxiety get on top of you. Just talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. Okay, so now moving on to the setup costs for a psychology private practice. Now, if you listen to the last episode, and if you haven't, I really recommend that you do, then you will know that I am all about setting up a practice that has more to it than just therapy. 
And if you're going to do anything more than therapy in your practice, which for personal and professional reasons, I really think we should all be doing, then you're going to need a really good website. So you may have heard, and there are people who have thriving private practices without a website. This is because you can get a lot of referrals from word of mouth and you can get a lot of referrals from directory sites and insurance companies without really needing a good website. I think the problem with that is that people don't expect that anymore. So most of my clients, even if they find me on a directory site or if they find me via their insurance company, they then will Google me to find out more. And if what comes up for you is just your Facebook page, I don't think that's going to cut it for much longer. It's also really important if you want to attract people who are specifically looking for your niche, and we'll talk a lot more about why niching can be really important in marketing a private practice, or if they're looking for your particular way of working, your ethos. Like anyone who knows me knows that I don't use labels in my practice. They know that I'm just not diagnostically minded and that I'm all about kind of breaking down the stigmas around certain labels. And lo and behold, most of my clients come to me because that's what they want and that's what they need and it aligns with their view. If I had a client who, you know, really found their label incredibly useful and wanted to explore neuropsychological understandings of their illness, I wouldn't be the right practitioner for them. I'm not the right therapist for that person because I don't have a specialism in neuropsychology. So it's your website can also be a really helpful way of people working out whether you are the right person for them. And it allows you to have much more of a voice online. So if you want to do anything that requires a bigger audience, like selling an online course, writing a book, creating workshops that appeal to more people than you would see in a normal one-to-one therapy environment, then you're really going to need a website which helps sell those services, but also helps you to develop the credibility and authority that you need in your field to bring those things to a wider audience. So I hope I've kind of emphasised some of the reasons there why you really need a decent website. And to get what I would call a decent professional website, you are going to be paying about £1,000. Now you can do it much cheaper, but if you have a rubbish website, that can really undermine your credibility. And your site is also going to be really crucial uh, for helping people find you on Google. So for that, you need really good search engine optimization. And a DIY website from somewhere like Wix or Squarespace, they just don't rank as highly as WordPress or Coded from Scratch sites. So if you're going to go down the WordPress or Coded from Scratch um, avenue for your website, which I massively recommend, you're going to have to pay for somebody's expertise in that area. And, you know, just like I wouldn't recommend undercharging for our expertise, I don't think it's really ethical to pay somebody minimum wage for doing something that has taken them so long to um, to procure those skills. So for that reason, I've paid my web developer £1,000 for my website and I've never regretted a penny of it. I do generate a lot of my clients through my website and it's allowed me to branch out and do much more with my business. Having said all of that, if you don't have £1,000 right now, I didn't either when I started my private practice. Don't let that stop you getting started 
All you need to get going is a landing page where people can send you an email. You can easily create that yourself with something like Lead Pages or Squarespace. It won't be your forever website for all the reasons that I've given above, but it's good enough to get you going. You'll also need a little budget for hosting your website and some other running costs. But if you're doing it through a platform like Squarespace or Lead Pages, or if you're doing it through a pro, they will cover all of that for you. So you don't really need to worry about the nitty gritty of it. So basically the take home from that is as soon as you've got the money, spend a thousand pounds on a decent website. When you haven't got the money, just get up and running with Squarespace or Lead Pages and then pay for it when you've got the client work coming in. The second thing I think you realistically need to budget for when you're setting up a private practice is a bit of training. So I was really lucky that I got access to a free business course when I was first setting up in private practice. Now that's because I'm an armed forces wife and there's quite a lot of investment from the government in helping us to set up our own businesses. So I got access to an amazing course called Supporting the Unsung Hero and that's still going. So if you're connected to the military in any way, whether you're serving a veteran or a spouse uh, or a dependent of any sort, then do send me a DM. And I will give you the, the details for that if you haven't already found them, because that course was really brilliant and I'd definitely pay for it if I needed it. NatWest run mini business courses and trainings. A lot of those are free if you bank with NatWest. And organisations like the Federation of Small Businesses, FSB, also provide courses for their members, so worth looking into. There are also special trainings available for people setting up social enterprises and many of those have government funding and they'll even help you out with childcare sometimes. So I think a good website to check out for that is the School of Social Entrepreneurs and I'll put the link in the show notes to all of these organisations. So as with all of these things, they tend to be postcode dependent. So the best strategy is to Google search to find what's local to you. And I hope to interview some amazing social entrepreneurs on the podcast in this series so you can see exactly how it's done. The third thing that I spent money on before I even had a client was design. Now, this probably feels controversial to some of you, but if you want a business that grows online, then you really do need a brand. That's because you need people to recognise your stuff amongst all of the traffic and noise that is filling our online lives at the moment. And you want them to feel comfortable and at home with you. And you need consistency for that. It's, it's like you want them to always know what they're going to get when they come to you. A bit like how you hope they feel when they come to you in therapy. Now, the most obvious type of branding that we all think of is a logo. That's the minimum that I would recommend. I think to go with that, you also need some consistent colours and consistent fonts that you always use in everything you create for your business, whether that be your website, blog posts or social media banners. So I invested in professional help with this from the beginning, as I really don't think in a visual way. And to be honest, that's what I recommend, because I think you could spend hours trying to DIY it and your time is worth more than that. But the prices for it do vary really wildly. So you can get some ridiculously cheap designers on sites like Fiverr, where you can get a logo design for literally a Fiverr, uh, or you can pay absolutely mega bucks um, on the budgets that the big companies spend. But to be honest, what I've learned going along and doing a bit of both of those things is that you mostly get what you pay for. If you want someone who understands what you're trying to reach with your business and why it all matters to you and the people that you're trying to help, 
then you're going to need to pay them for their expertise. So get a few quotes, check out their work on Instagram and see who you think can help you bring your vision to life on your budget. Now, if your budget's really tight, then you can use tools like Canva to DIY it and then upgrade as you bring money in. I think that's always the message with this stuff. If you don't have any money to start with, that's fine. Get a few clients through directory sites, but set aside some of that money that you make to invest in your business, because that's the only way that you're going to create something that brings you the kind of income that you need. Now we're going to move on to thinking about the running costs of a psychology private practice. Now, obviously, every business is different. I'm in Plymouth in the UK at the moment and I rent an office that's exclusively mine. I also do some online work. I do a lot of one-to-one face-to-face therapy. I do some couples therapy, hypnobirthing classes, and I write eBooks for parents. And I'm always kind of adding to that list of things that I offer. I like to keep things quite diverse in my practice. But I did think it would be useful to run through some approximations of my monthly expenses just to give anybody starting out a bit of an idea of what you might end up spending money on. And this feels really scary for me to share, but I really wish somebody had shown me this before I went into full-time private practice. Because if I'm honest, I thought, and I think a lot of us think this, when I was working in the NHS, I really believed that if I just had like, you know, six or seven clients in private practice, I'd be making so much money, I wouldn't need to, I wouldn't need to worry about finances anymore. What I quickly discovered was that if I just had six or seven clients, I actually wouldn't even cover the running costs of my practice. And that was like a slap in the face. And I don't want that for you. So for that reason, I am swallowing my discomfort and I'm going to run through some of the stuff that I spend money on in my practice so that you can prepare. All of this content I've written out in a really user-friendly way and putting into a workbook, which is actually one of the rewards that we're offering in the crowdfunder that I'm running at the moment. So there'll be more about that at the end of the episode. But don't worry if you don't want to take notes. I have put this all into a really affordable resource that you can just download um, from the crowdfunder page. So you can hop over there. I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay. So here goes, here is my list. So the first thing, and probably the most predictable thing that I spend money on is my rent. I spend £300 a month on my rent. I have exclusive use of my office in Plymouth. And yes, I know how incredibly lucky I am. We have science parks down here um, because they've tried to stimulate the economy. They want businesses to grow. So we do have a lot of affordable leases down here. That may not be true where you are, but it's definitely worth looking up things like business parks and science parks because they have a lot of benefits. Like here I've got a reception, I've got business services like printing, copying, post, all of that stuff, and I've got a 24-hour security patrol. So if you're thinking of running a practice that goes beyond just a couple of clients here and there, it can be really economical and can really increase your security to get yourself into a big building with other businesses in it. Of course, you've got to check out a few things like soundproofing, etc. But I've managed to find a solution that I'm really, really happy with down here. So definitely worth looking into. The second thing I spend money on, again, predictably, is internet and electricity. 
For me, that works out at about £45 a month because I need amazing broadband for my online therapy and my landlord lumps that together with my electricity bill. I pay around £5 a month for parking. Another thing you need to consider if you're planning on growing a practice that needs a bigger audience than just kind of a few people at a time for therapy is email marketing. So to stay GDPR compliant and be able to email all of your clients and prospective clients in one go without them all learning each other's names, you need some email marketing software. You can get a free version of something like MailChimp, which is great to start out with, but they start charging you once you get over a thousand people on your list. Now, we'll get way more into this in other episodes, so I'm not going to go deep. But if you're trying to sell something like a book or an online course, you tend to convert from your email list at around 1%. So if you've only got a thousand people on your list, the most you can realistically think you're going to sell of anything is 10 So if you're releasing, say, a book, which is only going to cost people, I don't know, a fiver, that isn't really going to make you very much money and it's probably not going to cover your costs and allow you to keep going. So for most projects that involve selling a book or an online course or something similar, to be sustainable, you're going to need way more than a thousand people and you're going to need to pay for it. But do get started on something like MailChimp where you can try it out and see what functions you use and what works for you for free. The next thing I pay for is Zoom. That cost me about £10 a month and I use it to deliver online therapy. It's basically a secure version of Skype. It's GDPR compliant and I find it works extremely well. I also record some of these podcast episodes using Zoom, um, which can be a really helpful functionality. Now, I also pay for practice management software. I spend £35 a month to use WriteUp to hold all of my data organize my client work and notes and keep everything GDPR compliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, As soon as you get to the point where you can't keep all your clients in your head anymore, it is just an absolute godsend. It also offers an online booking feature that busy clients really love. I've got quite a few clients that are fitting me in in between quite high powered jobs and they just can't commit to the same slot every week, much though I'd love them to. So they tend to just book in directly into my calendar and WriteUp allows them to do that. I will drop a a link in the show notes to WriteUp because it's something I use absolutely every day and I just don't know how I do my practice without it. So I really do recommend it and I've got an affiliate link to it. So I'll put that in the show notes for you. Another thing you may want to consider as a potential cost in your practice is equipment. So I spend £80 a month leasing a computer. That was essential for me because we only had one laptop in the family and it annoyed my husband how often I was needing to use it. Also, it felt really risky. Like if somebody dropped a cup of tea on the laptop at home, that would then mean I couldn't run my practice properly, Um, which because I offer a lot of online therapy and as I said, I can't hold everything in my head. So most of what I do is in write-up. All of my notes are in Google Drive. Um, It would just be catastrophic for me. Um, So I decided it was a good investment to get myself a fancy iMac. Didn't have the money up front, so I leased it off Hardsoft instead. Really happy to talk to anybody. DM me if you want to know more about how that works. It's not right for everybody. Some people would be better off using an interest-free credit card, etc. But, you know, it's one of those things. Look it up for you if you think you might need to lease something. um, Look it up. Look up all your different options, all the ways that you could get hold of it and just weigh up, you know, your financial situation. 
Um, but another reason that having an iMac has been really good for me is that I can plug into my broadband router and that gives you such a stable internet connection. It's incredible. It's so much better. If you're offering online therapy, that is an absolute game changer and I thoroughly recommend it. So now we come on to my biggest expense, by far my biggest expense. It's really hard to quantify, but CPD, continuing professional development, has sucked any money that would have been profit out of my practice from day one. Any leftover money I have goes on training. And sometimes this is guided by my passion for our profession. And sometimes it's driven by absolutely rampant imposter syndrome. So I would budget to do at least two trainings a year because you will get excited by things. And if your imposter syndrome is as strong as mine is, maybe you need to budget for a few more. And so it's common for good training to cost around a thousand pounds. And that really shocked me when I was used to getting it for free in the NHS. Um, Sometimes it's less, but I've definitely paid a thousand pounds for courses um, with the people that really inspire me. And it's been 100% worth it, I would say. Um, but so working on that level, I think budgeting around £160 a month is a good way to budget for it. Now, if you've got other projects that you work on outside of normal therapy work, then those will have expenses too. So for example, this podcast, editing, production and hosting the podcast costs me around £200 a month. If you want to create any of your own graphics, using a software package like Canva costs me £11 a month. Now, you can use Canva for free, but you can't save your brand colours and your brand fonts. And for the reasons we discussed earlier, I think it's well worth doing that. So I pretty happily pay £11 a month so that all the graphics I create for social media take me a fraction of the time. If you want to use something like lead pages to create landing pages where people can just give you their email address very quickly in exchange for a freebie that you're giving away, what, like that might be a self-care resource guide. I've written little ebooks on like conflict resolution, arguing well through divorce, that kind of thing. Um, that costs about £30 a month. But again, for me, that's been well worth it because it's so easy and quick to create a landing page with lead pages. Another thing you need to budget for is supervision. So I am supervision hungry. Like I said, I've got rampant imposter syndrome. So I need quite a lot of supervision and I budget about £145 a month for that, sometimes more. Um, because when my caseload gets big, when my caseload gets complex, I just book more in the diary. It's one of the things I love about private practice that I get to determine who I have supervision with and how often I have it. Um, It's a bit of a responsibility because you've got to track down the right person. You've got to find supervisors that have got the skills that you need. And sometimes if you're doing something very specialist, like medico-legal, for example, you need to pay over the odds um, for a supervisor with those skills. But it's also amazing um, because you get to basically shop around for the skills that you want to develop. So I'd budget around £145 a month for it. Now, marketing. You can get away with not spending any money on marketing. Of course you can. Um, And I definitely recommend in the early days, before you've got client work, before you're kind of up and running, I wouldn't bother spending money on stuff like Facebook ads. Facebook ads, in my experience, do not get clients for therapy. Google probably does. But if you haven't got the budget in the beginning, you haven't got it. 
Once you do have a bit of budget and you're trying to get something off the ground that needs a bigger audience than therapy, then realistically, if you want to use something like Facebook or Google ads, you're going to need at least £300 a month for those things. So when I sold my ebook at Christmas, I spent about £450 on Facebook ads over about six weeks. And that's sort of the minimum you need to spend to get any kind of return. I am going to get somebody on this podcast to talk to us a lot more about low budget Facebook marketing, because there's a hell of a lot we can do with it. I'm by no means an expert, but I have had some advice off some really, really clever Facebook ads people. And I'd love to be able to pass that on to you guys. So I'm going to see if I can get one of them to come and talk to us. Another thing that I spend a significant amount of money on in my practice is coaching. Now, I actually spend £300 a month to get coaching off somebody who knows everything about marketing. And I will be honest and I would say I think that is the best money I've ever spent. Not only because she helps me to market my practice and, and market other things that I do, like, you know, this podcast and my ebooks. But she's just helped me to see my business in a different way because we're not trained in this stuff. Nobody helps us in training to think about setting up a private practice or what that might look like or what we even want from it. So a lot of the stuff that I'm talking to you about on this podcast, I only ever thought about because she made me think about it. And it's been a game changer. I've gone from feeling really quite burnt out and just saying yes to every single client, having a busier caseload than I ever had in the NHS and not really making much money from it, to feeling comfortable, calm and excited about my business and excited about how I can help people. So yeah, I will pay £300 a month for that. It may be making your eyes water right now. You might be thinking that I'm mad. But a couple of years into private practice, that will probably start to seem a lot more sensible to you. And I'm just going to be open with you that I do spend that and I do think it's worth it. Insurance, we all know that we need um, professional indemnity insurance. There are other types of insurance you also might want to consider, like cyber insurance. Not everyone has it, but if you're holding data that offers some protection, just in case you suffer a data breach. An insurance expert of mine, who's also a friend, told me to get some, so I did. Um, there's also business contents insurance that you might want to consider. I don't actually have this yet because the only thing I have that is owned by the business as such is my iMac and I've got separate insurance for that. But you will need it if you start to have a lot of stuff in your practice. Um, so that's particularly relevant. You know, if you've got your own premises, you might need buildings insurance or if you've got loads of equipment that you use in your practice. So overall, it's worth budgeting about £40 a month for insurance. Now, mine is more expensive than average because I do have international clients and I do have insurance that covers me to do stuff like release this podcast in the US, which if you're not planning on doing anything in the US or Canada, that will reduce your premium. It'll be lower than mine, but it is worth considering. So this brings me on to the final thing that I want to talk to you about today and which constitutes quite a large part of my overheads, and that is delegation. Giving tasks that could be done by somebody else to somebody else. Right now, it might just be you in your business and it might feel impossible to imagine that you could ever spend the money to give up some of your paperwork. But it is really important in my mind to plan to delegate from the beginning. 
because things will really quickly get unmanageable and your creativity will burn out if you don't have help. Also, I found myself turning down clients who needed my help because I knew that if I didn't, I would not have time to get on top of the mound of invoicing I needed to do. And frankly, that is just wrong. It's just wrong. Like people need your expertise. They need your therapy skills. They need your workshops. They need your eBooks. They need your podcasts, all those other things that only you can do. They do not need you to be spending two hours a week or more in a sea of invoices, probably doing them badly. So the key to remember at this point, if you're just starting out, is create processes for key tasks like dealing with inquiries, sorting emails, handling DNAs, getting the paperwork together for new clients. Write those processes out, make policies, put them in your own folder in Google Drive and stick to them. That will mean when you do decide to outsource something, you can do it with a couple of emails or a video call with a good VA. It also helps you to stay GDPR compliant if you have a strict way of handling data that you just follow every time. So it really is a win-win. So as I just mentioned there, a couple of the people that I outsource to are a VA, which means virtual assistant, who helps me with invoicing. So I pay her about £150 a month to keep the diaries for various uh, third parties like insurance companies up to date for me and to make sure that all of my invoices get created and sent off on time. I can't tell you how much time that saved me because I'm pretty bad with numbers and it used to really stress me out and take me hours every week. So that's been absolutely amazing and I'd fully recommend it. Another thing that I have help with from a different type of assistant is social media. So I'm a words person. I love to write. I love to talk. I like doing video, but I do not enjoy the visuals. And it used to really stress me. So when I decided that I wanted to build a bigger audience on social media, that I wanted more people to see my stuff, I hired somebody to help me with that. So I pay about £325 a month for a lady who will schedule my content for me. And she's also the lovely lady that if you're in my community for psychologists and therapists who want to do more than therapy, which I hope you all are, and if you're not, please do join. Um, she's the lady that you might see popping up in there, tagging me in things, making sure that you all have a really positive experience of being in the group. She's the lady that when new people join the group, she will take down the details, obviously handling them in a confidential way uh, and put them into a spreadsheet for me so that I can then you know, add you to the mailing list if that's where you wanted to go and send you resources that are going to be useful for you going forward. So she's been really, really valuable. So we've talked about your setup costs, your running costs and why you need to delegate. I really hope that some of that would be useful for you wherever you are in your psychology private practice journey at the moment. Um, and I hope that knowing that stuff, knowing your numbers in advance will help you to achieve your big dreams quicker than you would have done if, like me, you're having to learn it all the hard way. Now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about something that I've got going Thank on you for over on to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It'll help more of the people who need it to find it.
See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.